We're in part four of Does God Make Sense? Um, and today, I want to talk about the huge subject of injustice, which is the weirdest Mother's Day message ever. So I gave you a heads up on that last week, but we're in the middle of this series. Though I would say this, if you um, have toddlers or remember toddlers, there is something to that experience that every once in a while reminds you there is evil in the world. And it exists in my three-year-old. Like, they're, they're sweet part of the time. I love them. But my three kids need Jesus, and they need you to pray for them. Like, there, there are those moments of, no, evil does exist, and I didn't teach them how to lie and manipulate and um, to, to do all of the things they do. They just learn how to do it on their own. So at some level, we can all relate. But here's the basic kind of premise of what I want to talk about. And this is where so many of us struggle in relationship with God. This is where a lot of us have walked away from God because of injustice. But the whole tension is, if God is good and God is just, why is there so little justice and so little good in the world? And many have walked away because of that issue or that problem of pain, that problem of suffering, that problem of seeing so much that is unjust. It's a huge problem. But here's what you need to know. It's a huge problem mainly for those of us who are in the West. It's not a huge problem for people around the world. In fact, historically, this has not been an issue with God. It's more of an issue for Americans in the West, Canadians in the West, um, a bunch of other people who would characterize themselves as living in the West, because you go to other areas of the country where there's extreme suffering. In many cases, there's extreme poverty. What you will find is extraordinary faith. So it's more of an issue in the West, but it is an issue with us. How do we reconcile a good and just God if there's a God with so much injustice and so, lack, so much lack of goodness? And here's the basic argument. If God could stop injustice, he would. And if God um, was good, he would stop injustice. If God could, he would stop injustice in the world. If God was good, he would stop injustice in the world. So basically you're left with either God can't, which that's an issue because you can't really be God if you can't do it. And if he won't, that's an issue. And so people walk away to go, okay, if God can't or won't end this, then there must not be a God. And I want to deal with kind of the logic behind that assumption for just a couple minutes this morning. But before I get there, here's my little um, premise. This is my little parentheses, and then I'll get back to what we're talking about. And it's just this, and it's kind of heads up for you, is be very cautious or proceed with caution when hijacking other people's pain to build a case against God. Like, just be careful of ripping somebody else's story, somebody else's experience, somebody else's suffering, and using their suffering and story as an argument for your belief in the non-existence of God. Because here's the deal. Until you've been in somebody else's shoes, don't assume your destination. Until you've been in somebody else's shoes, don't assume your outcome. See, it's very difficult to look at people around the world, and you don't think of it this way, but it's extraordinarily insulting, and you don't mean it that way, but to look at other people around the world and use their story as an argument against the existence of God. Because here's what you'll find in many cases with many people is that extraordinary suffering leads to extraordinary confidence in God. 
In fact, if you um, ever read the book, The Language of God, it's by a guy by the name of Francis Collins, and Francis Collins is a geneticist. He headed up the Human Genome Project. Well, you should just Google that. Extraordinary brilliant man. He is the head of the National Institutes of Health. He's a follower of Jesus. He's a, a conservative Christian. He also is a macroevolutionist. So if you struggle to reconcile science with the scriptures, you should just check him out. There is a category for you. But he loves Jesus, and he wrote this book. And in one part of the book, he talks about this whole dilemma, this whole tension of suffering and evil and injustice and God. And, and how do you make those two things fit? And in talking about that issue, he described the sexual assault of his college-age girl. And he talked about the pain and the hurt that they walked through as a family. And in it, he talked about not his temptation to walk away from God, not his disbelief in God. He talked about the intense and painful struggle to forgive the perpetrator of the crime on his daughter. And my only point is this, that Francis Collins would say to you, hey, hey, be very careful in using my story to build your argument against the existence of God because the pain and the suffering that we walked through did not cause me to walk away from God. It did not cause me to disbelieve in God. In fact, my confidence in God is stronger than ever. So just proceed with caution before you use somebody else's pain as an argument for your outcome and your view of the existence or the non-existence of God. So with that being the parentheses, here's basically what is behind all of this. And here's where I want to start, is that injustice is not an argument for or against anything. Injustice is not an argument for or against anything. In fact, if nothing else, it is a reminder of the fact that we need God. It is not an argument against God, specifically with Christianity. In fact, I would say this. There is no rational argument against the existence or involvement of the God of Jesus specifically based on injustice in the world. And it's emotional, and it's heartfelt, and all of us have stories. And in fact, if we could sit down and talk, I mean, any of us would feel empathy rise to the surface. We would be able to understand the tension, the hurt, the suffering, the pain, and all of the emotion that goes with that. And so it's extraordinarily emotional. But if you can step back from the emotion, it is not a rational argument against the God of Jesus. Now, it's a rational argument against a bunch of other faith versions about God, which I don't have time to go into, but it's not an argument against Christianity or the God of Jesus. Because Christianity has never made an argument for God's existence based on a world where bad things never happen to good people. We said this in week one, that nobody's ever made the argument that a good God would not allow bad things to happen to good people. And so since bad things never happen to good people, there must be a God. Nobody's ever made that argument. The, the, the issue of injustice, as emotional as it is, the issue of pain and the issue of suffering is emotional, but it is not a rational argument against or even for the existence of God as you look at Christianity and as you look at the message of Jesus. In fact, injustice in the world actually calls into question the justice of God, not the existence of God. 
So like one of the things that intellectually this should lead you toward is to question the, the justice of God, the goodness of God, but not the existence of God. It makes more sense for you to be angry at God than to come to the conclusion that there isn't a God. Because this is an argument of, okay, is God just? But it is not an argument for, does God exist? See, here, here's how I would describe this. There's a difference between an argument for existence and your personal experience. There's a difference between arguing for the existence of God and then what you personally have experienced in regard to pain and in regard to suffering. See, here's here's basically the historic Christian version for the existence of God. Christians believe that at one point there was nothing, and nothing, something cannot come from nothing. And so there was a necessary first cause. And Christians have believed historically that God was that necessary first cause. And God being that necessary first cause, that first cause ultimately created nature. And in scientific terms, nature was created in a supranatural way, meaning there was no nature, there was no time, there was no space, there was no laws of physics, there was nothing in regard to nature, and then nature basically appeared and something happened supranatural that is outside the bounds of nature, supernatural, that brought all of this into existence. And Christians have believed from the beginning that God, as that necessary first cause, was the creator of everything, was the creator of nature. And then Jesus comes along onto the scene and he does miracles. And he predicts his own death and predicts his own resurrection. And then he pulls it off. And so what, you go back to last week, what Jesus says about God can be trusted. What Jesus says about the scriptures can be trusted. As we said throughout the series, anytime somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, you go with whatever that guy says. And so we can believe what Jesus, God, Jesus ultimately said about God and what Jesus said about the scriptures. But here's what you need to know. Christianity does not make an argument for God or the existence of God that has anything to do with suffering in the world because our experience what we've gone through, what we have interpreted is not an argument for anything. And if anything, it questions the justice of God. It does not question the existence of God. In fact, if my kids were to come to you, maybe in a few years, and begin to complain to you that I'm an unjust father, that I'm unkind, that I'm an absent father, that continually bad things happen to them and I don't step in to do anything, you would make an argument about my goodness, but you wouldn't make an argument about my existence. In fact, the fact that you're talking to one of my kids is evidence of my existence. See, th this has never been an argument. It makes more sense for you to be angry with God, for you to, to come to a place where you're disappointed with God, rather than come to a decision that there is no God. It is not, as emotional as it is, and I get it, it is not an intellectual argument for existence. It is an argument for whether God is just or not, not whether God exists or not. Now here's, here's thank you for that, uh, sincerely. Um, here's the other thing about it you have to consider. If there is a God, where did you get the idea that that God has to be good and just? 
Like if God does exist, and if you're not there yet, just pretend with me for a second. If there is a God, where did you get the idea that God is good and just? Like where did that come from? Because again, to leverage that argument, you are assuming that God is good and that God is just, but where did that come from? Like says who? You? Because you can't make that up and then hold God accountable to that standard. You can't do that. In ancient times, the pharaohs didn't believe that God was good and just. Julius Caesar didn't believe the gods were good and just. So where does that argument come from? If there is a God, since you're leveraging that argument, if there is a God, why does that God have to be good and have to be just? And the answer to that question is someone told us or some told us that, which makes no sense. So it's actually someone told us that. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, somebody told you that. But here's the other question. Where did the sum get that from? Where did they come up with that from? Because here's what you know already intuitively is that you don't come to that conclusion through nature. Because nature is not good. And nature is not just. And nature is not fair. There is nothing in nature that exhibits that. So you will not come to that conclusion intuitively by observing nature. And where did they get that from the ancient gods? Because that didn't exist in earlier centuries. In fact, people followed the ancient gods, believing that injustice was an argument for existence. So where do you get that from? If there's a God, why does he have to be good? Why does he have to be just? And if he does, and if you hold to that view, it's it's because somebody told you, but where did that somebody get that idea And see, this is why if you walked away, and again, I get it. Again, if we sat down and I could hear every detail of your story, I would cry tears. Like, I would empathize with you. I get it. But if you walked away from God because of the issue of injustice, because of the issue of pain, this is what you need to consider and reconsider. Because the version of God that is about goodness, the version of God that is about justice, the version of God that is about dignity ultimately came from Jesus. The version of God to say every single person has inherent dignity, every single person has worth, there is a standard of justice that came ultimately from Jesus. This, we become so inoculated to this that we don't understand its origins. John, toward the end of his life, again, sits down. We, we talked about John a lot last week. He sits down after observing Jesus' life, after watching Jesus, after listening to Jesus, and he, he sits down to write these famous words. For God so loved, and John's like, I want to say all the Jewish people, but after being with Jesus, And after observing what Jesus did and what Jesus said, I think it's bigger than that. For God so loved the world. And Jesus is a guy, and this is so powerful, who introduced this idea of justice, this idea of dignity into a culture where nobody was getting justice, where nobody was getting dignity, where women were property, where might made right. If you had the power, you could do whatever you wanted to. It was not a virtue in first century culture. Babies were discarded, many times not given names, and if it was a girl, they would be put on this, this basically what, what they would call this, this dung hill, which was a, a, just a human 
body dump. That's how they viewed individuals. People were not viewed as equal. There was a class system even among the gods. There was no dignity. There was no justice. And into that culture, Jesus steps to say, I'm changing the game. And every single individual has inherent dignity. Every single individual has worth. That love will now be a virtue to carry forward in a culture that couldn't even define it. It ultimately came from Jesus. That your idea of a good and just God, you should just study this, it did not exist before him. It was not a virtue in the first century. And and come on, you have to consider this. First century followers who were giving up their lives, who were being persecuted for their faith, who were experiencing atrocities that it's hard to wrap our mind around, in the midst of all of that, believed that God was good and believed that God was just, even though they were not experiencing any justice whatsoever. See, the theology of Christianity is not nearly as fragile as you think, or it would have never survived the first century. If it was as simple as taking the legs out from under it because of injustice, because of evil, because of suffering, it would have never survived the first century. But for hundreds of years in the midst of persecution and suffering beyond what you can imagine, the Jesus movement exploded because it was never on the basis of injustice. It was never on the basis of evil. It was never on the basis of pain. They believed in a good and just God even in the midst of a culture where there was no justice. You have to ask the question, how did it survive? Maybe there's something you don't know. Maybe it's not as fragile as you think. Maybe there's a little more to the theology around Christianity than you ever imagined. And so John sits down and says this in summary of this whole idea that Jesus introduced in 1 John 4, 7. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. Well, why? It's the Galilean thing to do. It's what everybody in Jerusalem is doing. No, they don't even have a context for this. I want you to love one another because love comes from God. Well, from the gods? No, 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 no. It's not coming from the gods. The gods are not holding to this virtue. In fact, in the first century, the gods were tolerating humanity. The gods would rain down judgment or they would look in your favor if you gave the right amount of sacrifices, but the gods were not characterized by this. No, love finds itself, its source. It is the epicenter found in Jesus. And I'm telling you, what John is introducing in the first century was absolutely staggering. No one had context for this. And John is writing it during a time when his life is being threatened, that God is love. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God, in his essence and in his very nature, God is love. See, if you were brought up with the idea, well, I just believe that that God is a loving God, that God just loves everybody. You just need to know you didn't make that up. And you just need to know that the person or people who handed that to you did not make that up. That is not original with them. Love God and a loving God ultimately came from Jesus along with your definition of justice, along with your definition and benchmark for dignity. Before Jesus, it did not exist. So if there's a God who is good and just, where did you get that from? And the answer to that question, whether you ever embrace God or not, is from Jesus. 
that originated, that was launched through his ministry. Because again, and I said this already, but I want to go back, that's not natural. As you observe and look at the laws of nature, there's nothing about it that's just. There's nothing about it that's good. There's nothing about it that's fair. And there's nothing about it that's unjust either. It's just neutral. It doesn't produce any of those things. It's Stephen Hawking um, in a lecture that he gave at the University of Cambridge in 1990. He's a theoretical physicist. He's a cosmologist. He's a brilliant guy. Um, maybe your only context for him is the show The Big Bang Theory, which is what I always think of when I think of Stephen Hawking, Sheldon Cooper. Okay, obviously that didn't land in this room. So here's what Stephen Hawking says. It's a great show. Stephen Hawking said, the terror, you guys still with me? Okay, the terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution. Like, Stephen, what, what are you talking about? We're not on a first-name basis, but just right now. Like, what, like well, why does that stalk your mind? Well, like, why, does that, why does that give you terror that we arrived on the scene of evolution? Like, that, that's what you hold to. You deeply believe this. Like, why does that create terror? And he goes on to say, because of naturalistic selection, and natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. Stephen Hawking is like, I, I deeply believe this, but that's what keeps me up at night. That's what does something inside of me. That's what rises angst up to the surface of my mind. That, that's Stephen Hawking in a lecture at Cambridge University. And then you can look this up. He goes on to say that the only hope for humanity is that ultimately we find a way to be able to go to other galaxies and split up. And if we don't, and if we can't find a way to do that, then ultimately we will annihilate ourselves. Well, why? Because of nuclear proliferation? I mean, like, why are we going to annihilate ourselves? And Stephen Hawking, again, who deeply believes in natural selection, knows that at the heart of natural selection, you will not find justice. At the heart of natural selection, you will not find goodness. At the heart of natural selection, you will not find fairness. You won't find any of the virtues that you value, whether you believe in God or not, in his own words. Because as we looked at in week one, and you should go back and listen to it, under naturalistic selection or new atheism, the mind is an illusion ultimately. Free will is an illusion. Our idea of value, in Stephen Hawking's own words, is an illusion. That if all of this is just biology, chemistry, and the laws of physics, nothing really matters. And a man who deeply believes in this idea understands at the heart of it, justice and goodness are not virtues at natural selection. It is just biology. Which, this is a side note, and not in my notes, but something you should consider. Why do you value service and sacrifice so much? Almost every individual in the West at some level values service and values sacrifice. And here's just something interesting to, to consider, is that your concept of value and sacrifice and service, if you hold a natural selection, contradicts your worldview that says survival of the fittest. There is no room for service and sacrifice under that worldview. It is contradictory. Where did that come from? Why do you feel that? Why do you value that? And Stephen Hawking says, there is no way that we will be able to kind of mutually be able to live with one another without destroying ourselves. Because as you look at natural law, nothing screams justice, love, or dignity. The only thing you get at best, at best, is tolerance. So here's the issue behind all of this. And the implications, if you turn this around, are staggering. 
absolutely staggering. Because here's the implications of all of this if you're tracking with me, and maybe you're not. But the implications are that the best way to get rid of the problem of injustice in the world is to ultimately get rid of God. If you want to get rid of injustice, if you want to do away with justice, if you want to get rid of that thing that you feel, the only way to do that is to get rid of God. Because when God walks out the door, your standard of justice walks out with him. When God walks out the door, the God of Jesus, your standard of dignity walks out with him. When God walks out the door, your benchmark for what is good and right walks out with him. In fact, I would say it this way, that once there is no objective standard for justice, injustice ceases to exist. If you want to get rid of injustice, if you want to do away with this thing that all of us feel, that all of us grapple with, that all of us want to eliminate, intellectually, you have to eliminate God. And you know what you're left with? You're left with your justice. And you're left with my justice. And you're left with Nazi justice. And you're left with ISIS justice. And you're left with clan justice. And you're left with power justice. And nature justice. And rich justice. And justice becomes just what you want it to be. Because there is no objective standard. There is nothing and there is no one to appeal to. See, listen. If you reject God... You are not solving the problem of injustice. You are removing its very definition. The reason that you know there is injustice, the reason that you know there is evil, your objective standard for good came from the God of Jesus. And when you walk away from him or he walks out the door, injustice goes with him because there is no objective standard. So this brings us to this point, again, if you're still tracking, because now you're like, okay, gotcha, 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 because there's one thing you didn't address. Okay, if, uh, so let's just say all oh, that's true, that my personal experience is not an argument for existence. Okay, I can intellectually track with that. Um, if there is a good and just God, then ultimately that standard did come from Jesus, and I think you can just study that from history. You don't have to believe me on that. I believe all that's true. Okay, so if all of that is true, And there is, let's just say for sake of argument, there is a good and there is a just God. Does he have anything to say about this? Does he address this? I mean, come on, if there's a good and just God, how does he address this dilemma? And the answer to does he address this is absolutely categorically yes. But we don't like it. We get really nervous with it. It's very difficult for us to grab a hold of. This is where we start to feel the tension and walk away. But if there is a good and just God, which we believe that there is, does he address this whole idea of suffering? Does he address this whole idea of pain? And he absolutely does. Because Jesus is the one who introduced that God is love. But that's not all he said And in fact, it's Jesus who said that thankfully, gratefully, that the God of Jesus is a God of justice. And the very thing that we accuse God of neglecting is the very thing one day he will bring about. Justice for all. 
And that's the point where we start to get nervous because here's the whole idea that you cannot have justice without judgment. You cannot intellectually have justice without judgment. It it is impossible to have justice and not have judgment. And this is where our culture runs screaming. I can't believe in a God of judgment. I will not believe in a God of judgment. This is what I walked away from. But here's all I would tell you in grace. If you don't want a God of judgment, you don't want a God of justice. Because they cannot necessarily exist. If there is to be justice or if there is a God who cares about justice, there has to be judgment. See, here, here's the thing about it, and this is where kind of our hypocrisy comes to the surface. Because you know why this makes us so nervous? Because every single one of us know we fall short. Every single one of us know we don't meet the standard, that there is something that is not right with us. And hypocrisy begins to rise to the surface because I want you to get justice, but I want mercy for me. I want you to pay for what you've done. I want you to understand how you hurt my kid. I want you to pay for what you've done to our country. I want you to get retribution. I want you to get probation. I want you to suffer. I want you to understand the weight of every atrocity that you've caused. I want you to get the fact that you cause hurt, that you cause pain, and I want you to get justice. But when I stand before God, I'm going to have a spreadsheet and a PowerPoint, and I'm going to lay out my argument, what was behind all of those things, and then God's going to look at me to go, oh, I get it. I didn't really understand the backstory. You get a pass, go to the front row, right? Come on, and I'm not trying to talk you into anything, but, but seriously, you, you, you know it's true. You want aerosol can justice. Pshht, pshht. You want justice for everybody else. You want mercy for you. See, this is where hypocrisy rises to the surface because when we talk about this, you're not nervous about anybody else. You're nervous about you. This is where the gospel, the good news, becomes so unbelievably powerful. This is why it survived the first century. This is why every once in a while you look around and go, nobody would make this up. This is where the gospel becomes powerful and it becomes preeminent. Because God looked into a world where people were falling short. God looked into a world that he created. God looked into a world where people took the freedom he gave them and it led them into the direction that he suspected ultimately it would lead them. God looked into a world where people all over the place fell short. And come on, we know we fall short. You don't even have to use society. You don't have to use culture. You don't meet your legit standards. You don't do what you think you should do. And Jesus looked into that world God looked into that world where everyone fell short and he did not send a judge. He sent a savior. And come on, come on, if you've walked away, if you're online, if you're podcasting us, if you walked away from God because of the issue of injustice, because of the issue of pain, I just want to plead with you, you need to give it another look. You need to consider coming back because here's what I know about you is that you care about justice and nobody gave it to us like Jesus. And come on, 
as you consider this God in his grace and God in his mercy decided to come to planet earth and before he brought judgment, he decided to provide a way of salvation. It's Jesus who said, John wrote it down, for God did not come to judge in a world that needed to be judged, in a world that was off the rails, in a world that was out of control. God did not come to judge that world, but to save the world. One day, Jesus is with a group of people, and he begins to tell this parable, and a parable is an untrue story used to illustrate something that is true. And he talks about this lady who goes to this judge, and she had been treated unjustly. And the judge, it says, is wicked, doesn't care, has no empathy. And the woman comes to this judge and just pleads, hey, I, I, I need justice. I need justice. I need you to act on my behalf. I need you to do something. I need you to intervene. I need you to act on what has happened to me. And, and in this parable, it says that the judge just continued to put her off, stiff armor, he's wicked, he doesn't care, and the woman would not stop. She's meeting him in the parking lot, she's knocking on his door, she's looking through the window, she's showing up at 8 a.m. when he's coming to the office, and, and she just is pleading, I want justice, I want justice. And in the parable, Jesus says, eventually the judge comes to the place to give this woman justice. And he ends the parable, which everybody in that culture understood. This wasn't just an untrue story. They were like, we experience this all the time under the oppression of Rome. We are treated unjustly with really no hope of justice. We know a woman like that who lives down the street. And at the end of the parable, Jesus says, the judge finally relents and gives this woman justice. And he ends it by saying, if a wicked, unrighteous, doesn't really care judge ultimately will give the woman the justice she deserves because she annoyed him to death, how much more your heavenly father in heaven. And John Actually, Luke ends the parable this way, and this is Jesus' words. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Have you ever felt like God's putting you off? God, where are you at? God, what are you doing? God, why don't you intervene? Jesus is like, I understand. Verse 8, I tell you, he will see that you and they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, and they're all listening to this going, Son of Man comes, I thought you were the Son of Man, you're from God. Why do you keep telling us parables and we don't understand half of them, we're so confused. But Jesus is like, no, no, the Son of Man's going to come. I'm the Son of Man, but I'm going to take off from planet Earth. I'll fill you in on that later. When the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on the earth? Basically, will there be a remnant? Like in the first century, will there be a remnant of people with extraordinary faith who would say, we are not getting justice, but we love the God of justice. And there's gonna be a day. See, here, here's what we want. We want a God of justice who cares deeply, who care, a God of love who cares deeply about justice, but is not judgmental. And can I just tell you, that is impossible. <laughs> that cannot necessarily exist. And the message of the gospel as you follow and embrace Jesus is you get dignity now and ultimately justice later. And come on, can we just consider this for a second? 
if anyone had reason to walk away from God because of injustice, it was Jesus. I mean, come on, Jesus came to planet Earth to the very people he said had inherent value and they murdered him. Jesus came to planet Earth to the very people that he was preparing a way for salvation and they crucified him. Jesus came to the very people who he was defining the ethic of dignity and justice for and ultimately they murdered him in cold blood. If anybody had an excuse to walk away from God because of injustice, it would have been Jesus. But the issue is that evil and injustice are not arguments against the existence of God. If anything, they are arguments to the reality that we need God, that we need a savior, that we need rescue. And I know this is a huge statement, but I'll just say it anyway. If you genuinely care about justice, you should want Christianity to be true. Because evil and injustice are nagging reminders that something is off, something is not right. And if you are concerned about that, you need God. You need Jesus, God. Because isn't it true every once in a while, and all of us have felt this, regardless of what you feel about God. There's moments where you see something, maybe in your own neighborhood, but you see something across the waters. You see something in some area of the country, and we've seen so much of it. And when you see that thing happen, that atrocity, that evil, that violence, there's something that rises up within you. That you just, it's almost a physical feeling of, man, something has to be done. So this has got to stop. And that nagging longing that rises up in you as you watch the TV screen is a longing for something that, if you're honest, cannot even be achieved in this world. It's never going to happen. You have a longing in your heart. You have a desire in your heart. You have an angst in your heart for something to be that is not possible on this earth. It'll never happen. It's why C.S. Lewis, and this is a famous quote that maybe you've seen, this brilliant writer, and there's about four versions of this in his writing. C.S. Lewis pins this, and I think it describes all of us. If I find in myself a desire... A longing, an angst, uh, it's got to be different. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And come on, you are reminded of that every single day. Because in your heart, just push God off to the side for a second, in your heart you know what could be. And in your heart, you know what should be. And Jesus says, one day, it will be. But evil and suffering and injustice are not arguments against the existence of God. Ultimately, they are reminders that you and I need God. Enter Jesus. And I've said this throughout the series, but this is where I want to lead you to, and this is what I want you to consider, and then you have to decide for yourself. But we believe that Jesus really did come to planet Earth 
and he lived a life that nobody are, is going to be able to live, a life that none of us are going to measure up to, a, a life of perfection that we can never achieve. And then he went to a cross in, in an unjust way that we cannot imagine, died for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And then in history, walked out of a grave alive. And he says to every single one of you, when you feel injustice, when you feel pain, when you feel hurt, when you feel betrayal, when you feel that angst, when you feel that longing when injustice rises to the surface and you're confronted with it face to face those are reminders that you need a savior and it's why I came I understand injustice I understand betrayal I understand hurt I understand persecution I understand it in a way that you could never imagine and it is why I came because I created a human race with the opportunity for freedom and that freedom led them in a way that jacked up humanity and in Genesis 3:15 it began to point that one day there is going to be a savior that's going to take the sin of the world and before he brings judgment he is going to bring salvation and it's going to be offered to every single individual not just Jewish people not just white people not just black people gay people straight people people from every background every religious persuasion every socioeconomic status every ethnicity that salvation will be brought and offered to the world and come on you just have to consider before God sent judgment and there has to be judgment for there to be justice. He sent salvation and he offers it to every single one of us simply by faith. That is incredible good news. So maybe, and I'm just going to leave you with this, maybe the issue of injustice that has caused you to walk away from God is actually the very argument you needed to understand it's why there is a God. And that there is hope. And so the scripture says that every single individual who comes to that place to understand that they need a savior, you can't experience salvation until you know you need it. A doctor can't help till you know you're sick. Something can't be fixed until you know it's broken. And to understand the brokenness that you feel, the I fall short that you feel, is God by his grace inviting you in to say, I have a solution to that. And here's what I would argue, whether you're in the house or whether you're watching or podcasting, the fact that you are here and listening is an evidence that God is hot on your trail, man. And that by his grace, he is leading you, maybe even to hear us talk about some of the very arguments that have caused you to stiff arm him. And I'm just telling you, that thing inside of you is his invitation by grace to say, I want to give you hope and life and salvation. And it's offered by a simple transfer of trust. The scripture just says this, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, just in an internal way and says, I trust you will be saved. It's a simple Jesus. I believe that you are God and you are unlike any other. And I believe that you died on the cross for all of my sin, past, present, and the future sin that I will get to. And three days later, I believe in history, you walked out of a grave alive and it validated everything you said about God and it validated everything that is compiled in these scriptures and salvation really is offered to me. And so if you would, would you just bow your heads, close your eyes all over the house. And I have wanted to be very careful throughout this series to let you know that 
that my goal is not to manipulate you into decision or even convert you. My, my goal is to just present some of the topics and arguments that you're grappling with and let you know there is a God who loves you relentlessly. And my agenda is that you would fall in love with Jesus, but I can't do that for you. And that's your personal decision. It's not something that's based on your family of origin or something that you did as a kid or your grandmother or a class or a catechism. The scripture says it's a personal decision that you make to embrace the God of Jesus. And so right where you are with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just wanna end with this. Maybe today you would say, I I believe. This is for the first time, I believe. And the scripture says that if you just make this declaration of trust and, and you can pray this after me, but as I always wanna make clear, it's not a prayer that saves you. It's not a mantra that saves you. It is your personal declaration of trust in Jesus that honestly, you don't even have to utter in words. It can be a simple thought. But if it is a legitimate transfer of trust, the scripture says you are saved. You become redeemed. You become a child of God in that moment. But would you just right now in your own heart and mind say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died for my sin. And I believe three days later, you rose again. And in this moment, I'm not trusting me any longer. I'm trusting what Jesus has done for me. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity. You can just, again, pray that after me, but it's not the prayer. It's your declaration of trust. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose again. And in this moment, I am trusting what you have done for me, not what I can do for you. And the scripture says, the moment you make that declaration of trust, you receive salvation and forgiveness that can never be undone because it is on the basis of what Jesus has done, not what you will do for Jesus or have done for Jesus. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed all over the house, I just wanna give you just this one opportunity to just personally acknowledge that decision, that transfer of trust. But it's that, if that's you today to say for the first time, I've placed my trust in the God of Jesus. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we just lift up your hand and just say, that's me. Because I, I just wanna acknowledge when the spirit of God is working and that today he is working in your heart and he led you here for, the re, uh, for a reason. So if that, if that declaration of trust happened with you today, would you just lift up your hand to say, that's me. And for the first time I've embraced the God of Jesus. All right, God, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you so much for the scriptures. I thank you for what you have left us in history that Christianity is not faith and faith. It is faith and overwhelming evidence that there is a God who did something historically that we can believe in, trust in, and place all of our weight in. And so God, just continue to meet us wherever we are and we ask all of this and what we believe is the saving name of Jesus. Amen.